you can learn a lot about a person, a person's character particularly, by the quality of their work. Someone who does shoddy work demonstrates a spirit of pride, thanking themselves to be able to do a task for which they, they think themselves qualified. Yet their work proves their ineptness. Perhaps you've hired a contractor, even promised, uh, or rather hired a contractor who told you, even promised you, or made claims to you, though they themselves never followed through. Or perhaps the same contractor, when they finally got around to doing the work, their work, their attitude, their craft, revealed their character. But find a man or a woman who's studied, who's humble, who's taken the time, the diligent effort, the work that's required to hone a craft, to develop a trade, a skill, their character, their hard work, it speaks for itself. It speaks through their craftsmanship. Whether it's a musician or a carpenter, Regardless of the trade that one finds themselves, their character is revealed through their creation. And friends, this is true of God. God reveals His character through His work. He reveals the kind of God He is through His creation. His craftsmanship displays His character. And this morning, through Psalm 111, the psalmist invites us to join in praise and thanksgiving as we reflect upon the goodness and greatness of God's work, both in creation and through redemption. The Lord, the master craftsman, displays the greatness of His character through His work. Friend, I invite you to join me in Psalm 111. It's found on page 509 in the Black Pew Bibles provided. If you do not have a copy of God's Word of your own that you can read, uh, take that one as a gift from our congregation to you. Uh, We desire that you would know God through it by reading it regularly. But now turn to Psalm 111. This morning as we continue our study through the Psalms, we have just a few left that we'll consider this summer. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance 
of the nations. The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Friend, I hope you just recognize the straightforwardness of this particular psalm in the repetition of the word work. God is a God who works. He does things. He creates. He performs various tasks throughout this psalm. The psalmist illuminates various ways God is at work. And the main idea of Psalm 111 is that God displays His goodness and greatness through His work. It displays His goodness. He's a good God. His greatness. He's a powerful God. And He works both in creation and our redemption through Jesus Christ. His work is the fuel that ignites our praise and thanksgiving. I've entitled this a song of thanksgiving. We ought to be thankful for the work, the gifts of God's work in our life. The way in the various ways God has cared for us. So the purpose of our time this morning is to simply reflect on God's character as revealed through this psalm. Now, there's many other attributes of God's character we could consider this morning. But we're just going to stay right here with Psalm 111 and consider these various aspects of His character. We often say that God is good. How do we know that He's good? Because He has done so much for me. Right? So much, which is why He is praiseworthy. And this is why Spurgeon once quipped, this psalm may be called the psalm of God's work intended to excite us to the work of praise. You see, God's work gets us working. When God works, it ignites us, it excites us, it gets us gathering here of all the things that we could do this morning at 1045 on Sunday with all of the Various things on our calendars, all the aches and pains that right now you're feeling as you're sitting in those hard wooden pews, you've come. You've come because He's worthy of praise. You, you, you sang songs written thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago, because He's worthy of praise. You, you listen to long prayers and, and prayed yourself because He's worthy of praise. He's worthy. You're even going to sit and listen to a monologue for the next 45 minutes. No one does that anymore. But you do because His Word is worthy to be praised. That's why you do it. So friends, let us excite ourselves to praise by considering ten reasons God is worthy of our thankfulness. This morning we're going to consider ten reasons why God is worthy of our thankfulness. Now, this psalm, like the psalms we've considered, is an acrostic. 
It begins each line with a subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so it does not have a typical structure that we might find. It flows freely from one verse to the next, unified around the idea that God is at work and therefore worthy of praise. And and so the psalmist here is calling us to praise God because of these three things. And before you get nervous and your tummy starts to grumble a bit, uh, we'll move quickly through these ten points. Okay? All right. Number one, God is worthy. His works are praiseworthy. Notice how the psalmist begins, praise the Lord. Now, some of your translations might have, instead of the word, praise the Lord, hallelujah, right? That's, that's the uh, transliteration of what is happening here. We sing hallelujah or hallelujah. It simply means praise. We praise God. We offer praise to Him. We use our lips, our voices to, to acknowledge Him because, as the psalmist says, He is praiseworthy. Notice what he says, I give thanks to the Lord. Now, you might be frustrated, perhaps. You're looking and saying, well, my translation says, I will praise the Lord. Friend, there's a fine distinction between praise and thanksgiving, okay? So so don't frustrate yourself a bit there. Um, They really essentially mean the same thing, right? To, To praise God is to thank God. To thank God is to praise God. It is to acknowledge that God has done something meritorious of praise or because His character, because of just who He is. Before he's done anything, God is worthy of praise. And notice here, the psalmist says, I will praise with my whole heart. See, the main idea here is that he's praiseworthy. God desires not half our praise, half our lives, but our whole lives. To come and to bid our entire self to this God. To bow before Him, to sing praise to Him because He's worth it. Because he's worth it. His works are praiseworthy, as we'll see as the psalm unfolds. Well, number two, point number two, the second reason, his works are wise. His works are wise. Notice how the psalmist continues. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Great are his works. His works are so great that man can sit and study them, to marvel at them, to reflect upon them. These are no paltry work. This is no minor work. This is a great work, and it can be studied. God, in his grace, gives us this ability to study him. To allow our minds to roll and to think about all of the various ways God is great. Consider even Psalm 143. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the works of your hands. To God be the glory. Great things He has done. Fanny Crosby helping us understand the goodness of God, the praiseworthiness of God because of the things He's done. Consider what Spurgeon writes as he reflects on this psalm. The devout naturalist ransacks nature. The earnest student of history pries into hidden facts and dark stories. The man of God digs into the mines of Scripture and hoards up each grain of its golden truth 
God's works are worthy of our riches, our researches rather. They yield us instruction and pleasure and wonderfully blended and they, they help us grow, appearing to be far greater after investigation than before. Men's works are noble from a distance. God's works are great when sought out. Friend, hasn't that been your experience? If you've been a Christian a number of years, surely you've grown in your knowledge of God through your diligent study of Scripture. In fact, that's much of the journey of the Christian life, continuing to grow. There's never a day, friend, when we'll come to this point where we close our Bibles and say, I know it all. No. It is a lifetime. More than a lifetime. It's an eternity of knowing God. He is all wise. We can know Him through His Word. We We can praise Him. This is what Ezra did when Ezra sat down and determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach it to others. Friend, consider, even now, your study is a form of praise. Friend, don't don't confuse devotion time as, as mere checking a spiritual box. No, no, see it as an act of worship. Seeking to know God better. Number three, his works are majestic. Majestic. Now, that's not a word we naturally use every day to to say something's majestic. In in this sense, look here at verse three, full of splendor and majesty. See, why we struggle with this a bit is because we're Americans. We're not used to the royal pomp and circumstances. Just a, a number of months ago, of course, a new king was coronated in, over the United Kingdom. And there was much pomp and much certainty. The, whole, the entire world was fixated. Maybe you got up early in the morning to watch all of the history unfolding before your eyes. The language here the psalmist is using is, is that of royalty. Splendid beauty, breathtaking. Words paled to, to describe like the jewels that was on the king's crown. They, they, were, they were full of wealth and power. It, it communicated to the world around it that the United Kingdom was a powerful nation with a powerful king. Well, in this way, God also is a royal king. We use the word sovereign all the time. We talk about the sovereignty of God. Simply what that means is that God is king. He's a sovereign. He has a kingdom. And uh, in order to have a kingdom, you've got to have people in that kingdom. And God has, from eternity past, said, hey, these are the people I want in my kingdom. And you might think, oh man, who does he pick? He must pick the rich, the powerful, the noble, the great, the good. No, actually, he goes to the byways and the highways and he picks the scum of the earth, the nobodies, the poor, and worse than that, revilers and sinners, rebellious people. And he invites him into his kingdom. Oh, in this way, he's praiseworthy, friends, because he is a king and he sovereignly rules over his creation and his covenant people. Well, number four, we see in verse four, his works are memorable. Notice, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. Oh, what a wonderful truth this is. God created you with a memory. Anyone ever think about that? Just imagine what it would be like not to have that. Maybe some of you are losing yours, and you know how challenging that is, having to make notes all the time. And what a wonderful thing that God gives you a memory 
Not so that you can remember all the bad things you've done in life or all the good things you, you've done, but so you can remember Him. So that when you wake up in the morning, you don't forget what God did for you yesterday. Well, in this sense, the words that the psalmist is using isn't merely to remember generic ways God has been good. No, no, he uses, look at your Bibles, verse 4. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. In other words, oh, you see this mystery? Isn't it fun how all of a sudden you remember something you've not, you've not thought about for so long? Some way, some measure in which God was faithful to his covenant promise to you? And you're like, oh, I remember 50 years ago when God rescued me from my sins. He caused you. His Spirit caused that. And then notice the covenant language, the Lord. This is, this is a special. You notice it's all capitalized, L-O-R-D. Well, this is Yahweh. This is, this is the covenant God of Israel. He has been gracious and merciful. This is ca- causing our minds to go back to that that pinnacle passage in Exodus, chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. Yet God is a God who saves. It's memorable. You know those times when you smell something and all of a sudden long forgotten memories just begin to well up in your mind? Friend, this is what God does to those who diligently study His Word. He reminds us in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our valleys, of all the ways God in the past has delivered His people and cared for us. Friend, this is why we ought to give ourselves to studying the great ways that God has worked. This is why we read our Bibles. Not to merely pass a, you know, Jeopardy quizzes, but, but rather to have in our memory banks for the Spirit to pull out and remind us of God's greatness and therefore ignite and fuel our praise of Him. Number five, His works are providential. His works are providential. If you hear the word providential, Sounds big, simply means provides. You see it there, providential, provides. What does he say? Look at the verb, verse 5. He, God, provides what? Food. To whom? For To whom? Those who fear Him. His covenant people. This is why the psalmist uh, has a second line, a parallel line. He remembers His covenant forever. Isn't it interesting how we're remembering God and God is remembering us? This is what Jesus promised His disciple. I will le- never leave you nor forsake you. Or what God promised the nation of Israel. You are my people. I will be your God. God provides. God provides food. L- literally, you might have a King James. It might say meat. Yes. The idea is that He provides not just meat. Good but bread and water and, and various things. God provides for us. This is, of course, what Jesus taught His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Friend, perhaps you've been there. You've wondered, 
where your next meal is going to come from. There's been seasons of your life where you're wondering um, if you're even going to eat today. Jesus says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So it's not wrong to have those things, he says. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Isn't it wonderful, the language we use? We call God our Father, because He's a good Father. Maybe we've had the bad experience of bad fathers, and so therefore we kind of project that on God. No, God is a good Father. He gives us everything we need, not necessarily what we want. At the heart of this verse is God's covenant-keeping love for His people. His chesed love. This is that Old Testament love. This covenant-keeping love. God is long-suffering. He promised through Abraham that He would make Him a great nation. And God came through on His promise. Moreover, He continually provided the physical, spiritual, and emotional needs for His people. Like a husband to a wife or a father to a son, God has provided. Even in seasons when they rebelled, He was continually providing prophets to call them back to covenant faithfulness. God is faithful even when we are not. Therefore, He's praiseworthy. Number six, His works are powerful. Notice the psalmist now leads us to consider the power that God distributes or displays. Verse 6, He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. God has shown. The, 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 the verbal idea here is we saw it. They saw it. They, they saw it. Well, where did they see it? What, what is He speaking about here? Well, He's talking about the promised land. In giving them, who? The nation of Israel, the inheritance of the nations. See, when God delivered His people, He promised to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. He promised to give them space where they could plant their flag, if you will. And He could nourish them and provide for them. And you might consider, well, how did that display His power? My friend, if you go back and read over the plagues in the Exodus, so the beginning of the book of Exodus, God's people are enslaved in Egypt, and He raises up a man named Moses to deliver His people, and there's a series of plagues that take place, and each of these plagues are not meant to just sort of uh, be parlor tricks, you know, to kind of show, look how cool God is. But rather, they were an indictment. They were a judgment upon the gods of Egypt, which at the time would have been the greatest nation on the face of the earth. And and what God does through the Exodus is make the great and mighty Egypt just look pitiful and quite sad. God displays His power. Of course, friend, this is true of us. Consider this, every conversion from sin to holiness is a lustrous display of power, wisdom, and the grace of God. Friend, you saw God's power when He rescued you from your sin and delivered you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Number seven, His works are dependable. His works 
are dependable. The psalmist goes on to reflect further on the work of God. The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. Now imagine for a moment you have a fickle sovereign. A fickle king. Demanding one thing one day and another the next. We would, we would go crazy, right? So imagine a boss at work who comes to you and demands that you complete a task, then the next day comes and says to you, well, I want you to complete this task now, not that task. You would grow frustrated. You would go, grow mad. Friend, isn't it wonderful that God's requirements are unchanging? That His judgments are just? He would never judge us in a way that is unfair. He gets it right every single time. His His precepts, His rules, His demands upon humanity are what? Trustworthy. They're dependable. Unlike the ever-changing tides of demands that we might experience here. I mean, even consider in our own government. One of the most frustrating things you've, you've no doubt experienced in the last number of years has been the executive orders given out by the President of the United States. Every four to eight years, we get a whole host of new rules. All the old rules are undone and the new rules are put in, right? It's an ever-changing tide of rules. School teachers, you, you know these rules and how they get handed down. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. But not with God, friends. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. God is praiseworthy because He's dependable. He comes through every time. And He never changes. Number eight, His works are eternal. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. Consider that God and His Word is enduring. The grass withers, Isaiah says, the flower fades, but the Word of God will stand forever. Friend, isn't this good? To know that if we, we seek to follow God and submit to His Word in obedience, that God's not going to change the rules down the road. Sort of move the goalpost on us a bit. No, no, His Word is an enduring Word. It's a fixed Word. Much of why it's dependable. But more than that, it's because it's eternal. The sum of your word is truth, Psalm 119 says. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. They're forever. They're unchanging. Because our God is unchanging. Consider what Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote. The Lord is not swayed by transient motives. Or motivated by the circumstances of the hour. Immutable principles rule in the courts of Jehovah. And He pursues His eternal purposes without shadow of turning. Our works are too often wood, hay, and stubble, but His doings are of gold, silver, and precious stones. We take up a purpose for a while and then exchange it for another, but He is of one mind, and none can turn Him. He acts in eternity and for eternity, and hence, what He works abides forever. Isn't it wonderful to know that the work of our redemption will never wear out? I mean, consider for a moment that a million years from now, a trillion years from now, 
The cross is still effective to satisfy God's wrath against us. It will never wear out. God won't one day wake up and say, oh, hey, actually, we're going to undo all this. No, no, His Word is fixed. This is why He's praiseworthy. Well, this, of course, leads the psalmist to reflect upon His redemption. Look there at verse 9. Number 9, His work is redeeming. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. Much of this psalm has been a reflection back on God's great work of redemption through the Exodus. God saving a people from slavery and delivering them to their own land to form their own country where they could obey God and make much of Him among the nations around them. God has delivered them from captivity, not only Egypt, but to sin. But it also points to God's provisions at Mount Sinai. The giving of the law and His greater provision of that land flowing with milk and honey. The picture of God's protection and provision and care for His covenant people. This is our God. This is how He acts. And friend, as we reflect upon God's great work of redemption in the Old Testament, of course, all that God did there points forward to what God did through Christ This is why we sang the songs we sang this morning. Christ the true and better Adam. Christ the true and better Isaac. Christ the true and better Moses. Even greater than all that God did through the Exodus. Christ's deliverance through His atoning work. Of course, this this is what the parents of Jesus heard in Luke chapter 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, For He has visited and redeemed His people. This is what God is doing through the cross. He's purchasing a people for His own possession. He's buying you. And the currency that He used to purchase your eternal soul was the death of His own Son. Isn't He praiseworthy? Friend, this is the culmination of all that God did in the Old Testament. The the work of Christ. This is why He is the preeminent one. This is why He is worthy of our adoration and praise. That's why when we gather here, we praise the Father. And His love for us in giving His Son. And we praise the Son because the Son willingly came and lived the life we should have. And died the death that we deserved. And was raised again to prove that He had power and authority. That He was the sovereign King of kings. He was the Lord of lords. And that every knee will bow. And the Holy Spirit is the one who bows our knees before King Jesus in regenerating our hearts and giving us new life in Christ. Brothers and sisters, the cross fuels our praise of God. This is why we make much of God in our time together. We want to hear from Him because He is praiseworthy. Number 10 and finally, His works are profitable. His works are profitable. Now, Psalm 111 is actually a sister to Psalm 112. Both of these psalms are an acrostic, and this particular verse is a hinge that connects 111 to 112. 
as the psalmist continues down the road here on the profitability of God's work. The Lord, excuse me, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Here's the thing. Here's the idea. Obedience, obedience is a form of worship. Obedience is worship. We obey that which we worship. We obey that which we worship. And if we say that we worship the one true and living God, if we say that Jesus is Lord, then that means we obey Him. And if we disobey Him, what we are doing is we are taking the crown off of His head and putting it on our own. When we go down the road of sin, we are exchanging His crown for our own. We're saying, we want to be king. We want to live life our own way. But of course, those who know God, who've studied His precepts, who've studied His mighty works, who know His power and His greatness and His goodness, oh, they want to follow Him. We're reminded of the words of Peter. When everyone was deserting Jesus and everybody was going away when the crowds began to disperse and it was only the twelve. Jesus looked at Peter and the disciples and He said, are you going to leave me also? Are you going to abandon me as well? And Peter responds, with you are the words of life. To experience the greatness and power of God is to submit to Him through obedience. One commentator writes this, Here our text relates especially to God and His character as Creator, Redeemer, and Provider, for whom reverence will be mingled with delight, gratitude, and trust. So men of God have the key to what life is about, that from Him and to Him and through Him are all things, and have the benefit of perfect precepts for its handling. Brothers and sisters, to follow God is to lead a profitable life. His works lead to our own spiritual good, for His glory and our good. Oh, let us reflect on the Lord's handiwork. Carve out time in your life to reflect, to to sort of kindle the dry wood of your soul by reflecting on the work of God and His workmanship. It displays His character. And remember, you and I are a work of God, a a display of His greatness and goodness. Whether it be in nature or through His redemptive work in Scripture, let us diligently in our study of God's goodness and greatness fuel our praise eternally. Let's pray. God, help us, we pray, to think more deeply upon your greatness and your goodness, that our lips might praise you, that your praise might endure forever. Lord, help us to meditate upon your word and henceforth continually breathe out loud shouts of hallelujah as long as we live. Amen.